It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Wenigle and today I'm joined by my co-host Michael Steindorn. Good morning, Kay. How are you today, Mike? Excellent, thank you. Great. Today we're going to be talking to Miriam Lyons, Senior Campaigner, Renewable Energy at GetUp. Miriam was an Executive Director at the Centre for Policy Development, a Sydney-based think tank which aims to inject new ideas into Australia's public debate, and now is a Fellow. She was formerly Policy Coordinator for the Independent News and satire website newmatilda.com. While studying politics and international relations at the University of New South Wales, she co-founded Nexus a non-partisan network aimed at closing the gap between young people and the democratic process. After graduating, she worked as a media development consultant in East Timor. Today we'll be discussing the report jointly produced by Solar Citizens and GetUp called the Homegrown Power Plan. It's a very comprehensive report, so we'll do our best to get through the main points in the 30 minutes that we have. Hi Miriam, thanks for joining us. Hi there, thanks for having me. Firstly, congratulations on such an impressive report. How's oh, it been received you. so far? Yeah, really well, actually. We've been pretty delighted by the reception of it. Both, you know, when we put it out the, the night before we were putting it out, we um, suddenly panicked because we realised that effectively um, the election was going to be called the next day. It was going to be a done deal. And so all of the media would be covering the fact that we had an election. And yes, it was, again, probably going to be on July 2, almost definitely now. Yeah. Um, this was on April 19th um, that we put it out. And literally that morning at 6am, we were like, oh, is it going to tank if we put it out? today but we've already booked in to do this thing at the Wheeler Centre tonight so basically the cat's out of the bag Um, and we've heard rumours that maybe the Labor Party is going to pick up a couple of the ideas that we gave them a sneak preview of because we'd been shopping it around in Canberra and showing some of the ideas that had been in the um, power plan to people in the Coalition and Labor and the Greens before it came out and we'd just like heard a rumour that maybe one of them was actually going to make it into the uh, Mm. Labor Party's climate policy and so we're like oh well, we better actually get the thing out there, um, you know, before before they release their policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that morning we were literally, you know, 6am going, oh, should we put it out? Should we put it out? You know, it might get swamped. And then we put it out. It got on the project that night and we were so chuffed by that because, you yeah. know, they obviously, you know, commercial TV, getting energy policy of any kind yeah. discussed on commercial television is always a big win. Mm. Um, the Guardian did some really great stories on it, um, which you can – find if you um, uh, just Google the coverage of the report, the Homegrown Power Plan on the Guardian's website. They did some really lovely interactive graphs so you can drill it down into all of the modelling that the Institute for Sustainable Futures did for the report um, mm-hmm. and see what it is that they found and look, you know, the different assumptions, the different scenarios and what that means between now and 2050. So oh, we're really pleased hint. with, yeah, we mm. were really pleased with the reception of it. Mm. And of course, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a good report because it builds on the re- 
research done by a whole lot of others who have gone before us. You know, we stood on the shoulders of a lot of research giants, including Beyond Zero Emissions, who very kindly actually shared a bunch of the data that went into your renewable um, superpower mm. uh, plan, which, mm. you know, was of really, course. really great. I love it when you have this whole research community all building on each other's ideas and, mm. and, and drawing on each other. It's really, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's really pertinent being um, the first of the, the BZD reports um, we hopefully would have been there by now and, and, and gone to zero carbon Australia, but yeah, I mean, all course, very close. But I mean, it's not the first time, right, that somebody has shown that you can get to 100% renewable power or 100% mm. renewable energy for everything. You know, all of the sector by sector reports from Beyond Zero Emissions, you know, the stationary power report that I remember really making waves back in 2010 mm. and mm. all of the other reports that you guys have done since then, you know, that shows us what's possible. Um, the Climate Works work um, where they did a deep decarbonisation pathway that included 100% yes. renewable energy yep. for everything by 2050. You know, we're, so we're obviously not the only ones who have shown that this is technically possible with the work um, that we commissioned from the Institute for Sustainable Futures. But, of course, you know, one of the things with all these big fat reports is that the prices um, are plummeting so fast, mm. um, you know, particularly for solar PV now. Um, and now batteries, of course, and the prices for batteries it's are starting fun, yep. to plummet, which we, you know, that that's happening so fast that it wasn't mm. really picked up in this report, which means I actually think that the estimations in this report are quite conservative and we could potentially oh, go yeah. further faster. Yeah. You know, we could potentially bring the cost down faster because that's not yet reflected, you know, that oh. nobody's got the right data sets and the right kind of models yep. to really plug falling battery costs in adequately at this mm. point, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, the the prices keep coming down so fast that before the ink is dry on these big fat reports, yeah. all the cost estimates turn into overestimates. Yeah. So we do need to keep on updating this kind of work. Yeah. The other thing I think that's been really interesting about the work that the Institute for Sustainable Futures did is that as well as integrating um, the energy use across sectors, so, you know, if you imagine sort of, you know, plugging the stationary power report that you guys did into transport sector report, mm -hmm. into the buildings plan yep. um, and having a model that plugs all of those in together. Um, that's essentially what the Institute for Sustainable Futures model, which they did in collaboration with the German Aerospace Agency, does. Um, and then they used that integrated analysis and drilled right down into, well, what does that mean for how fast we can get to 100% renewable stationary power? So if you plug all of that increased transport demand from electric vehicles, for example, um, into the system, into that model, what does that mean? And then what does that save us in fuel costs? So I think that's... Um, yeah, some of the really interesting stuff about so, what the modelling behind this report did. But then, of course, you know, we went on top of that and actually spelled out a policy roadmap for yeah. how to get mm. there. So. Which, which we want to come to. Mm. But just on that explicit point of the 100%, your researchers found that a transition to 100% renewable energy within one generation is not only technically feasible, but also economically responsible. So the whole energy system could be totally decarbonised by 2050. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it not only shows that it's feasible and that we could do it, but that we'd be mad not to, right? Mm. So Australia is the sunniest continent in the world. It's one of the windiest. Um, you know, we have this amazing solar resource as the renewable superpower report that BZE put out, which I'm, mm. I'm such a huge fan of, um, 
you know, shows us, you know, this is Australia's next huge competitive advantage, you know. We had one that was based on cheap, dirty energy. We could have one in the future that was based on cheap, clean energy. Like, that is within our grasp. So what I think is really useful about what the Institute for Sustainable Futures Research uh, has drilled down on is it just shows you, you know, just the amazing benefits that come with fuel-free electricity, you know. You mm. don't have to shovel coal into a wind turbine. <laughs> you don't have to pour petrol into your electric vehicle um, and that of course delivers huge fuel cost savings so yep. you know that's yeah. one reason that we should get on with it apart from all yeah. of the environmental benefits the oh, health oh, benefits oh, you yes. know the fact that the climate is kind of cooking mm-hmm. and one of the things that was interesting when we um, drilled down on the um, carbon reduction dividend that you get with this transition to renewables um, and with the transition to 100% renewable power for homes and businesses by 2030 um, and then additionally 40% of the transport sector being renewable powered by 2035. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at what that means in terms of Australia's um, energy sector carbon pollution, it's basically consistent with the lower end of what the Climate Change Authority is recommending that we would do um, by 2030. So their recommended reduction range is 40 to 60% um, reduction on 2000 levels by 2030. Um, The Labor's policy is towards the lower end of that target range Mm -hmm. um, and getting to 100% renewable stationary power just for homes and businesses or including additional transport demand by 2035, um, that is consistent with the lower end of that range, right? So we would have to do a whole lot of other stuff outside the energy sector. So what this is this mm. telling exactly. us is that mm. this is not a, this is a conservative estimate of what needs to be done um, d- just to be consistent with a fairly miserly approach to Australia's international obligations Which to themselves reduce are fairly carbon. Miserly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, to reduce yeah. carbon pollution. It's not consistent with a 1.5 degree target. Mm. So we do need to go further faster. So anything else that others can do to, you know, like follow up and, you know, drill down and say, oh, actually, you know, we could we could double en- Australia's energy productivity faster than by 2030. You know, there's other opportunities that we haven't explored yet. Oh, you know, falling battery costs actually mean mm. that it's much more viable for us to do this part of the report even faster, we'd be, you know, super keen for people to be following up on that. And of course, that's um, music to my ears as, as a, a BZE acolyte. That um, one of the things that so attracted me to BZE is the beyond zero emissions that mm. they recognised ten years ago that we actually need to not just go to zero emissions, but we need to start drawing down. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And not just 100% renewable energy. Why not 300% renewable energy? I've heard that there's some provinces in China that have essentially 300% Mm. renewables. And and that's what the the latest superpower, uh, Australia's superpower energy report says. Um, I want to, just for those that haven't read the report, just um, cover some of the areas. Uh, As Kay said, it was called the Homegrown Power Plan. Discusses three main areas how we can repower the country with renewable energy, how we can reboot our failing electricity system, and how to remove the roadblocks, um, which is a very interesting one we have to get to, holding back the renewables energy boom. Um, BZD, as you've just referenced, has already produced a report on how to repower the country with renewable energy, but could you discuss the changes in the RET that are proposed and the reverse options? 
Um, so the renewal, the RET, the renewable energy target, um, is essentially a market mechanism that drives the um, uptake in renewals, both large and small scale. Um, and you know, I'm sure that all of your listeners remember perfectly well the <laughs> dark times in which the Abbott government yes. was um, attempting to smash the RET open, essentially because um, you know when you get a whole lot more cheap. Um, renewable energy in the mix, you know, particularly a lot more wind power in the mix, that can produce electricity at very, very low marginal cost because mm. you're not shoveling coal into a wind turbine, right? So that means that they essentially get to shave off the profits of the big, dirty, thermal coal-fired mm-hmm. power stations. Once you who, make that capital investment. Once that capital investment is made, exactly. And so the way that the, the national electricity market works, what that was actually doing is was lowering wholesale electricity prices and it was set to save how Households quite a lot of money by its effect on lowering wholesale electricity prices, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of what most people have in their heads because they don't understand, you know, obscure jargon like the merit order effect. Mm. But, you know, these big power companies understood it perfectly well and they were fighting back and they were getting the Abbott government to do essentially their dirty work for mm. them. And so before those attacks, the renewable energy target was working perfectly well. Um, it was essentially, you know, the only thing that we had that was really um, acting effectively as a federal government policy mechanism to drive uptake in renewables after the dismantling of the carbon, carbon price. Tax. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so the Productivity Commission did an analysis of different ways, um, essentially, of decarbonising the energy sector, and they found that after a carbon price, policies like the renewable energy target are the least cost ways of driving that transition. Mm. Um So it's a responsible policy. It was working well until the attacks. It could work well again if certainty is restored. Now, right now, we have reasonably rock-solid certainty about the 2020 renewable energy target, but we have nothing beyond them. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And that, of course, that doesn't provide the long-term certainty that investors need. So what we're suggesting is that you can have a much larger renewable energy target to 2030, Mm -hmm. um, but even if you had a 100% renewable energy target by 2030, 30, towards the end of that, it would probably end up becoming largely a compliance mechanism rather than the main mm. thing that was driving the market mm. yeah. because we know that new wind and new new wind is already cheaper than mm. new build mm-hmm. um, coal-fired power um, and solar is predicted to catch up by 2020. So beyond that, you would expect that the investment decisions will be made in their own right, but there will still be some owners potentially in the market who are like, hmm, I really want my written-off coal-fired power plant that was built on the taxpayer's dime a couple, you know, a generation ago by that point, um, you know, to still be in the mix. So it's largely at that point ends Mm. up becoming a compliance mechanism. Because the renewable energy target is a market mechanism, what it tends to do is drive whatever is least cost to build right now in the places that are least cost to build it. So that means at the moment, a lot of wind along existing transmission lines. So what we're proposing with the reverse auctions as a complement to that is essentially using another very cost-effective tool um, in the uh, Australian Capital Territory, in the ACT. Um, It's been the centrepiece of their 100% Mm -hmm. renewable 
power policy uh, and it's been so wildly successful that they've actually been able to move their deadline forward from mm. 2025 to 2020 to get to 100% renewable power for the ACT because they've been getting such low prices. They've been setting records mm. for mm. Australia mm. with low prices for wind energy mm. through these reverse auctions. So what we're proposing is that that would be a really smart way to get a head start on the essential elements of a 100% renewable grid. So that might include things like pumped hydro, um, you know, concentrated solar thermal with storage, um, uh, potentially large-scale battery storage. So mm -hmm. a lot of the technologies, some of the technologies that help um, manage uh, essentially voltage control. So some of the services that are currently provided by what gets called base low power, but which mm. is increasingly being made redundant by the shift in the whole paradigm of how our power system is working. The ability to provide dispatchable power is exactly, really what exactly. That it's, it's basically it's, it's on de it's on demand, on demand. electricity. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. And so, how can we reboot our failing electricity system? Um, so uh, it's it's interesting, right? Because uh, uh, often you you speak to people who have an engagement with the. Um, power sector in Australia who are really proud of the design of Australia's electricity market. Um, you know, we had competition policy. Competition policy was supposed to bring down prices for consumers and instead what we saw was prices that um, went up in real terms by 70% over five to six years, right? That was very rapid. Um, and and that reversely, is because, not actually because of the cost of power, because of the... But because of the cost of the network because mm. essentially we have a network that, you know, gives network companies Companies a license to print money on mm. building more cost poles and wires. We have a system of you know bargaining in you know what is essentially a natural monopoly and remains a natural mm. monopoly. The grid um, through which all of those electrons travel, mm. right? Yep. Um, we have that system. Uh, and the way that it is set up essentially just rewards anybody who can hire the most expensive consultants and lawyers to yeah. go in and fight with the regulator over who should be allowed to profit more from mm. the system. So we've All got they the have whole... to do is convince them that they're, they're, they need an upgrade yeah, and then yeah, they're yeah. given 10% extra yeah. on top L of that. Literally 40,000 page submissions, you know. So how is an average consumer advocate group supposed to compete mm. with people who have so much more money on their their side when they, you know, engage in this sort of mm. Goliath versus David battles at a state-by-state -state so level. So how do we move forward? So um, we have proposed a pretty comprehensive package on how to reform the national electricity market and its governance, starting with an Australian Energy Transition Agency. So we definitely need to have a one-stop shop um, that uh, essentially coordinates the phase out of fossil fuels and the phase in of uh, renewable power. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most, I think, sort of evocative uh, examples of what's wrong with how the market is working right now and how the rules that are set up uh, are working right now is the National Electricity Objective, which is essentially like the one sentence that rules them all. It's literally mm -hmm. a sentence um, that spells out what everybody who has the power to make decisions about how the whole system works on a day-to-day -day basis. So the regulators, um, you know, the rule maker, they all take this one sentence 
Sentence, the National Electricity Objective, or NEO, it's very matrix, mm-hmm. as their kind of Zen <laughs> Cohen, you know. Uh, yep. uh, and so you um, go and you propose to the Australian Energy Market Commission, hey, you know, it'd be really great if we could enable like local trading of renewable energy between people and their neighbours and that farmer down the road. And they say, mm, well, uh, it's not in the National Electricity Objective. So the NEO says no. Mm. Um, and at the moment, that objective, it doesn't include the environment. It doesn't include equity. Um, so one thing that we're proposing is that we actually put the objective of 100% renewable energy so and have to make senten- it affordable yeah. into the sentence that rules them all. Yeah, I don't know what the current sentence says, but I have your proposed sentence. Deliver an affordable, efficient, reliable, safe and fair electricity system that is powered by 100% renewable energy. Yeah. So instantly make it the job of everybody who's currently running the system to wake up in the morning, go to work, and actually build the and transition the moment, that we need instead of blocking no it. there is absolutely no mention of renewable, so there yeah. is no, in, That's right. not only no incentive, but actually a disincentive to do it because yeah. it's not part yeah. of their objectives. Yeah. So and um, Labor didn't pick up that exact proposed wording of the sentence, but they have made a reference in their new climate policy in their proposal to have this big electricity market review if they were to be elected, that they would look at including decarbonisation objectives in the NEO. So They would look at it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's so a I was start. Just going to, that, that, that was my next question. We'll keep the pressure up. <laughs> How do you actually get that done is the next question. Look, um, you know, who knows what is going to happen um, uh, this election, but if they were to win government, that would be a massive opening and an opportunity for all of us who care about the future of renewable energy in Australia or for all of us who want to see a system that doesn't just work better for the planet but works better for people, um, which the current system definitely isn't doing, that's an opportunity and that would be an opening for all of us to, you know, get up in arms and make a lot of noise and... um, apply some pressure in some strategic places and get the changes that we need. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show and we're talking to Miriam Lyons, Senior Campaigner, Renewable Energy at GetUp and the primary author of the Homegrown Power Plan. Along with Nikki Eisen, I should say. (laughs) Nikki Eisen, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, it was very much a joint project. Okay. And getting on to the third point, how can we remove the roadblocks holding back this plan? So... There's a whole lot of things about the way the system works right now that are a legacy of bad decisions that have been made in the past. And that ranges from the fact that we've got a grid grid that is built in the wrong places. We've got a grid that, you know, was built on the taxpayer's dime again um, to where the coal was rather than where the sun and wind is. Um, so in some cases, we need um, actually to reshape the grid. Um, and that is, a, that is a roadblock. And, you've uh, you know, it's another situation in which you've got renewable energy not playing on a level playing field because the existing coal-fired power stations didn't have to pay for all of the costs of building that grid when they were privatised. Um, but you've got mm. new renewable energy entrants who are often actually being blocked by the network companies who just, you know, kind of get to decide on a whim as to whether they'll, you know, let them have access to the grid, you know, this week, next year, mm. in a decade, you know, whenever. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff about how that works that really needs to be sorted out. So we've got um, some different proposals on how to deal with that, including, you know, the very unsexy but Trust me, it's important need for um, independent grid planning authority. Um, 
the you know some of the really big ones are the fossil fuel subsidies. So we have a whole system of tax incentives that is essentially pushing spending on energy in the wrong direction. Um, we could save uh, around $6.4 billion to the budget every year um, if we were to remove those subsidies. That's the diesel subsidy primarily, is it? Yeah, the diesel subsidy is a big part of it, but there's mm-hmm. others in there as well. Okay. So the airline um, tax credit, there's um, uh, one of the things I think is, uh, you know, least, you know, least justifiable uh, in many ways is um, the exploration incentive. So, mm-hmm. you know, essentially we're giving big fat handouts <laughs> for spending to go find more coal, um, go find more uh, gas, go find more oil yeah. when we know that the I vast majority, if not happening. all, of the existing <laughs> reserves have to stay in the <laughs> ground if we were to prevent dangerous yes. climate change, yes. right? So, <laughs> mm. And it's a lot easier to go find more sun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm. Yeah, so the accelerated depreciation is something that renewable energy currently doesn't have but is mm-hmm. extended to fossil fuel companies. So, you know, that's another example of where renewables aren't playing on a level playing field at all. So just continue on those costs. You also mentioned, I think, $9 billion a year on power sector fuel costs. Yeah, so that's part of what the Institute for Sustainable Futures research found. Mm-hmm. Um, so we save essentially $20 billion a year if we make the transition to 100% renewable energy for everything. So that's everything from hauling freight to driving a car to catching a flight um, to, you know, what is actually powering our electricity. Um, so you save uh, the $9 billion a year on, on the power, power sector. And $11 fuel costs, billion on the transport. $11 billion on transport, mm-hmm. which is primarily petrol, basically. And on top of that, there's a 6.4. So we're talking 26-odd billion. Pretty soon oh, it starts yeah. to add up to yeah. real money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously there is also additional investment costs associated with going to renewable energy faster rather than just kind of sitting around on our asses mm-hmm. and waiting for things to go as they might otherwise do in a fairly chaotic fashion. So mm-hmm. accelerating that transition to renewables does bring additional upfront investment costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the Institute for Sustainable Futures found was that the fuel savings cover 110% of those additional investment costs. Okay. So you end up with a spectrum of of dates of um, when the system would pay for itself from 2025 through to 2040. Mm. And 2040 is basically your worst case. So actually that's a separate thing again. Okay. Um, So they find that between here and 2050, um, we cover more than enough of the additional renewable investment costs with fuel savings. Um, So that's a net gain for Australia. And obviously beyond that, it's gravy. But what they also did was drill down on wholesale electricity prices. And they found that even just looking at wholesale prices in the power sector in isolation, um, you end up with uh, it paying itself off. You know, you get to a break-even point in wholesale power prices as early as 2025 if you assume a low carbon price. So that's $20 a tonne from 2020 and $30 from 2030. And it could be as late as 2040 if you assume no carbon price out to 2040, which Mm -hmm. I think is a reasonably heroic assumption based on where the world is going. Stupid one, yeah, Yeah. a very stupid (laughs) assumption. Um, And you have to assume that coal and gas prices basically stay flat out between now and 2040. Mm -hmm. Um, So, which again is a conservative, which is again is a very conservative assumption. So, so I think an, an implausibly conservative assumption means that we get cheaper electricity from 2040. 40 instead of from 2025. Mm. Okay. And so can you tell our listeners how you plan to provide the 
renewable power to Indigenous communities, low-income households and renters. You cover that fairly well in your report. Um, I, well, it's it, we wouldn't personally plan to provide um, all uh, power to remote Indigenous communities, but we've mapped out um, one process with a little bit of consultation, but we think that a lot more consultation is needed to come up with the ideal um, plan for, you know, essentially, you know, making sure that remote Indigenous communities who are on the front lines of climate change, um, you know, who are often having to pay exorbitant prices to keep digital generators running or, you know, just getting extremely expensive electricity uh, on are in the first in line to benefit from the renewables boom in Australia. So we think that that's absolutely necessary. That's a rock-solid principle. And we've mapped out some ways in which that could be done. Um, and, you know, we think that it's absolutely imperative and it, it's a total no-brainer. There have been really good programs on this in the past and they've been defunded for no good reason. Mm. Um, you know, diesel generators cost an enormous amount to run. It just makes sense to have um, solar power and a lot of these, you know, any, any remote community in particular in remote Indigenous communities. But there's a few um, suggestions that were made by some of the people that we talked to in designing how that might work um, that included the need to make sure that it's not um, fly-in, fly-out solar. You know, you don't mm. just go dump the panel and run, that you actually provide um, training opportunities, mm. job opportunities, so that you have some good local jobs that come with the installation of renewables. So you don't just benefit from the savings on diesel generation, but you actually benefit from, you know, more transferable skills that can be applied in other areas. Mm. Um, we've also, you know, looked at the fact that we know that um, solar, rooftop solar is now cheaper than retail electricity. So a lot of mm. people have been saving a lot of money on their bills by installing rooftop solar, but that's not been open to everyone because, you know, it's hard for renters to mm. access it. It's hard for people in apartments. So the community powerhouses idea, which is Nikki Ison, my co-author's baby, She's been working community energy for a whole, for quite a long time and she's been working with over 70 community energy groups who have come up with a whole lot of different and innovative ways of making sure that that access to solar and the benefits of solar is extended to more people and the people who are currently locked out, essentially, mm. of the benefits of the so renewables boom. For example, they can have a share in, in a in solar... A, in a solar, solar garden, roof. yeah, like but, a community garden, but, but a solar garden. But of course, garden. it relies on them getting permission to buy that electricity across the network, and that's exactly, where one of the is, major blocks. Is, yeah, actually. which is why market reform is so important. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So starting with changing the neo to put 100% mm. renewable energy mm -hmm. and social justice into it, that would be a good start because it would then mean that everybody else had the job of figuring out how to rewrite the rules so it enabled that mm. instead of blocking it. Yeah. So, Miriam, your projections out until 2030 under the 100% renewable electricity scenario, seem to me to show that by 2030 there's still a significant reliance on gas and oil in 2030, um, with coal completely phased out, the only thing completely phased out by then. Mm. Is that the case and, and why is that? Yeah, so what this um, report did was drill down on um, one what it would take to get to 100% renewable power um, to power all of our homes and businesses, but excluding the additional demand from the switchover of essentially cars mm -hmm. to electric Transport, vehicles. Yeah. yeah. So once you've got, you know, nobody wants to have a Tesla that's powered on coal, right? So it's really important that you accelerate that transition as well. But by accelerating the transition to electric vehicles, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell BZE listeners how important <laughs> the electrification of everything is, but obviously that increases the demand for electricity. So you have to exclude that electricity demand um, in the modelling that these guys have done, which as I said, is quite conservative, mm -hmm. to get to 100% renewable power by 20. 2030. 
If you whack the additional demand from electric vehicles in there, it takes until 2035 to get to 100% renewables. Um, so that's why you'd still see a, a reasonable amount of gas in the mix there at 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> So the report is states that decarbonising our entire energy system by 2050 means that Australia gets an $800 billion slice of the global renewables investment boom and all jobs that come with it as well. Mm, absolutely. That's a pretty good incentive on its own, really, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Australia had um, recently, I think it was last year, had one of the biggest um, uh, annual drops in investment since the 1990s, right? So um, there was a massive drop-off in investment after the end of the mining investment boom. Um, and, you know, that is a, a reasonably large hit, often an exaggerated hit, but still a reasonably large hit on Australia's economy. We know that a lot of the profits flowed offshore because 80%, um, you know, 80% of those profits um, from the mining sector were flowing offshore. But nevertheless, it does have an economic footprint. And if Australia is looking around for other things that could pick up this, the economic slack from that, then a renewables investment boom kind of looks like a no-brainer. You know, the real question is, you know, are you going to be building a bunch of, you know, holes in the ground to, you know, like the Adani coal mine, you know, essentially produce coal that the world is busily trying to move away from? Or are you going to build a renewable energy sector which can not only power our own homes and businesses with clean energy, but can actually also form that base for, you know, as BZD talks about, the renewable energy superpower potential. So get to ourselves, our domestic consumption to 100% at first and then build on that. And, Mm. you know, the people who will win from that, there's plenty of research shows that there's a big... Uh, early mover advantage um, in re- the renewable space. So, yeah, yeah. do it faster, go hard. Mm. We we we'll get the, the jobs. Benefits. We can sell yeah. the energy, and we yeah. can um, produce uh, energy-intensive product here, such as mm. silicon foundries or aluminium, and and sell it too. Absolutely, Miriam. Fascinating talk. We're out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, heartiest congratulations on the report. It's brilliant. Thank For you. our listeners, where can they find out more information? If they just go to getup.org.au slash HPP for homegrown power plants. So that's getup.org.au slash HPP. HPP. Thank you again. Beyond Zero Show is brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thank you until next week. See you. Hi, my name is Miriam Lyons. I'm a renewable energy campaigner at GetUp, and I have just been interviewed on the Beyond Zero Emissions Technology Show. Please support 3CR. You know how many fantastic community causes these guys support. How about you show them a bit of love, guys? Their Radiothon is from the 6th of June to the 19th of June. They've been doing radical radio for 40 years. Any donation over $2 is tax deductible. Their phone number is 0394198377. And you can also pay online at 3cr.org.au. Get to it.